Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Second Act Actors. I'm your host, Dr. Janet McMorty, and I'm still a medical doctor simultaneously trying to pursue a career in acting. My guest this week is Abby Tozer. Abby has a degree in neuroscience and then switched into acting. She has such an interesting story that, oh my gosh, I relate to so much. Doing a ton of creative things growing up, but really enjoying science, like really liking it. And then being in this aggressive degree program with people also in an aggressive degree program with you and not really knowing how to explain to your friends that you love creating and you love acting and what do you do when you're in the middle of things like this and then you want to change your career path. I relate. I relate. She has such a great story. She does so much interesting, fascinating stuff. She's based in LA. She's a filmmaker. She does really neat, immersive theater productions. And she's an incredibly accomplished actress. Please enjoy the lovely, incredibly talented Abby Tozer. I remember seeing a funny meme online, and I can't remember what her name was. It was, uh, oh, Elizabeth Warren, that they made, f- yeah, they made fun of on, on SNL. But, like, she has like, had, like, a, fu- she had, like, a funny walk that she did, and they made fun of it being, like, people in the background, like, background actors walking around, and it was, like, normal walking, and then it was, like, background actors as soon as you say action, and it was, like, the Elizabeth Warren funny walk, <laughs> and I'm like... It's so true. I forget how to human now. Oh, God. <laughs> That's so funny you say that because like, I did featured background work on the show 13 Reasons Why, if you know it. Ooh, yeah. Okay. And like when I first started doing that, it was not weird for me because like I grew up acting, but there were some people <laughs> they would call action where they'd be like background action and then like first team action, whatever, because it's huge set, right? It's a Netflix show. But some people, they'd be like pantomime eating, but they'd had food. They like had food and they'd pantomime eating. And the director would like come over and be like, you guys, if you have food, eat the food. Like you're a real person who eats food. You're in a cafeteria. If you don't have food, don't pantomime eating the food because there's no food there. And then he'd be like, all right. And they'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the next time it'd be like someone like pantomime holding a pencil or like, <laughs> they'd be like, in the background, I'm like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Like, if someone were to watch this episode, they'd be like, hey, what is that kid doing in the back? Like, is he eating pizza? Like, what's he holding in his hand? There's nothing there. I don't see anything. Like, are we in a dream sequence? Like, so- it's funny because I remember my very first acting class, very first one. And they said, for example, If you are going to be, let's say you're on the stage and your character has lost their keys, you need to go onto the stage and legitimately look for your keys. Don't just pretend to look for your keys. Look for your keys. And I was like, oh, yeah, like, look for your keys. They are lost. Look for them. Don't pretend like... And it's funny because it's that that intention, right? As soon as you change that to be like, my keys are legitimately lost as opposed to, oh, look at me. I'm mimicking someone who has lost keys. You know what? It's kind of funny how much of a a bunch of a game changer that was for me. I was like, oh, duh. But that's that's acting and that's acting training. (laughs) Yeah. Eat the food in front of you if you have food. That's so funny. That's so funny. (laughs) So, yeah, tell me, you just, you said you've been acting your whole life. Tell me your story. Tell me the life story of Abby. Okay. Okay. Um, I did my first musical when I was nine. I was Annie and Annie, like many people are for their first musical. <laughs> it's such a great show. Yeah. So that was my first musical in the fourth grade at St. Mary's Catholic School in Galveston, Texas. And I went in and I auditioned for it and I didn't tell my parents and I sang walking in a winter wonderland because it's the only song i knew the words to 
So that's what I sang for my audition. And then they asked me if I would sing a song from the show. And I didn't know the show. I had no idea. So I was like, no. And they're like, okay. And then they called me back and asked if I could like learn music from the show. And then I got the part. And my understudy was a freshman in high school. And I was nine. And she hated me like beyond belief. (laughs) And I loved it. Like I loved being in this show. Like, oh, it was so much fun. And it was like not a well done show at all. And it was for me like my debut, like my breakout, like the best thing on the planet. And I had been playing piano since I was six. I started playing piano when I was six and I taught myself how to play by ear. I was one of those people who was like, if I heard a song, I could figure out how to play it kind of thing. Terrible at sight reading, but really good at like auditory learning so I was always doing sort of arts things and then from then all the way through high school I was in a ton of musicals probably like 20 something musicals a lot of them I had the lead I loved musical theater that was like my life but at the same time I was doing like I'm these I'm the kind of person who has to do like everything always all the time I have to be doing like 50,000 things yeah and it's like ridiculous so especially when I was in high school I was French Honor Society president. I was running varsity track. I was taking like six AP classes every year. I was like national merit person, finalist. I did all of those things. And then I was very academically inclined. So I was kind of walking this path of I don't really know what I'm going to do. And then I did unified auditions for musical theater. And I also applied academically to like the IVs and to the UCs. And then I didn't get into the school I wanted to go to for musical theater but I got into UC Berkeley, like academically. So I went to Berkeley. It was really weird. When I try to explain this to people, because now I'm a college counselor, so it's really ironic. Like that's something I do on the side. And I'm trying to explain like my college process. And I think I applied to like 30 schools, but half of them were musical theater schools. So I auditioned, like physically in-person auditioned for them, didn't just apply. And then the other 15, like I submitted my SAT score and my GPA and like wrote all these essays and like personal statements and all of that stuff. And so, yeah, I got into Boston College. That was like my backup school. And then I was like, okay, Berkeley, because both my parents went to Berkeley and my grandfather went to Berkeley and my great aunt went to Berkeley. So everyone in my family, like Berkeley people. So I went to Berkeley and I studied neuroscience and I got a degree in neuroscience Yeah, I got a BS in neuroscience and I did a double minor in acting and jazz piano performance while I was there. So I did two summers to like fit everything in because as I'm sure you know, like neuroscience is an impacted major. So you can't like fit other things in as electives if they're in obviously different colleges and like the College of the Arts. No way. So (laughs) I had to like do it in summers. And then the summer after my junior year, I all during college, like I was modeling professionally because I did a little bit in high school. I'm really tall. I'm like five ten, like a very tall person. So in the Bay Area, there's a ton of like digital work and like industrials because it's super techie. So everyone has money, but they're like not sure what to do with it. So like, ooh, let's shoot like a Walmart commercial. Like this, yeah. So that's going on in the Bay. So I started to do some modeling just to like make money, honestly. And then I slowly started getting back into the acting, but didn't tell anybody I was doing it. And then the summer before my senior year, I was for the first time in my life living alone. Like I was in my apartment that I was going to move into with all my friends, but they were away for the summer. So I was on my own and I started just like going to commercial auditions. And then I got an agent and I was like, whoa. And I didn't like my parents didn't really know what was going on. And none of my friends knew what was going on. I just didn't really tell anybody because I was like also at the same time studying for the MCAT. So my life (laughs) was in a weird like we don't know and then i got cast on 13 reasons why which shoots since it shot in sebastopol which is like 45 minutes north of berkeley and we were shooting like overnights and only like my closest friends knew i was doing this and i would shoot overnights from like 10 p.m to 4 a.m and i would wake up the next day and have a full day of class and i was in like 22 units and i this is my senior fall and i was in like mammalian cadaver lab so i literally had a cadaver like a human body that i was working on during class and then what was in like october i got cast as romeo and our school's production of romeo and juliet so i had like a leading role in a shakespearean freaking like 120 page play so then i had rehearsal every night from like six to ten so i would show up late to the overnights for this period of my life I really like should have died. Like, I don't know. So this was like eight weeks. It was a full semester that I did this. And then 
I was like, I didn't, I didn't know what to do basically because after I did Romeo, after I wrapped on 13 Reasons, I started doing like student films and then I got cast in my first feature. I was like, uh, I like love this and I'm about to graduate and I don't know how I'm going to graduate because I don't know what I'm doing. It's like, what am I going to go to medical school? And the hardest part I think was that I was good at that. Like I'm good at science and I like it. So I'm like, I'm good at it and I like it. I'm already here. I'm at this amazing school. I'm surrounded by all my best friends who are doing the same thing. But I'm like, I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to. But I didn't know how to like change that or like explain that to people. So I had like a crisis, like a complete total crisis moment. Where I was like, I have no idea how to change my path. And this was in February of 2020. So then, so then, um, it was a pandemic. Yeah. It was my senior year at Berkeley in the spring, my last semester. And I had just gotten cast in a feature and I had like one of the leading roles and it was SAG. So I was going to go SAG. And I was my big, my master plan was to like come home for the summer for like a couple weeks, get all my stuff and tell my parents I was moving to LA. Be like, I have all these things. Like I have a legitimate job. I'm going there for this. It's going to be great. And then it was a pandemic. So then I had to f- fly home and finish my degree online at home with my little sister who was a senior in high school. And like my whole family was there. My grandparents were there. Like, <laughs> So then all of a sudden I was like back home in my high school bedroom, you know, like a lot of people. But it was a weird transition because I was I was trying to transition and it wasn't really solidified yet. And then it kind of like digressed. But then something really interesting happened because in Houston during the pandemic, it was it was one of those places that was a lot more open and also just where we are, it's just not very crowded. So people were able to get out of like quarantine earlier. So, well, even during quarantine, my sister and I actually got COVID at the same time. And that was the week I was supposed to test for my film. So I was positive for COVID and then they recast my role. So that was a fun little side note. And then my sister and I, we're quarantined for 15 days in her room. And during that period of time, she was doing her college applications and she was, she wanted to do vocal performance, but then she was being told that she should do something like as a backup plan or something else and this kind of thing. And I was with her. So I was like, Hey, like, why don't you just actually apply for vocal performance? Like we're in here. No one's going to like, no, we could do your self tapes while we're in here. So she applied for vocal performance. And then we came out of quarantine and like told my parents we were doing this. And then she got into USC from quarantine in opera. And that's where she is now. She's a sophomore. So then the spring of 2021, my plan was I'm moving to LA in the summer and I got cast in a feature. I shot it in Houston. It was six weeks. And then I got cast in another feature, shot it six weeks. So then I came into LA and I had shot first two features and I had a leading role in one of them. And I was like, this is great. Like I know how to be on a set. This is awesome. And then I was doing overnights on the first one. It was like a found footage Blair Witch style project. And during like our breaks and stuff, I would write. I just found myself like writing because I was so bored. And we were like in the middle of the forest and it was a million degrees and there were mosquitoes everywhere. <laughs> it was great. It was so much fun. But <laughs> I then started like writing about the two weeks that my sister and I were quarantined together because it was crazy. That was a weird period of time because I hadn't seen her in like a year and a half. And I hadn't known her since she was like 13. And now she's like, 17 on the brink of adulthood and she has all these interests and all these people like i just don't know anything about her and then we became like the best of friends and now she's like doing the arts and it was just a really cool period of time and then oh allow this ambulance to pass okay town but yeah so then i moved to la i i drove down i like flew to the bay i drove down got all my stuff from college i've been back there got all my stuff from college, drove down to LA, got an apartment. And then I wanted to make a film. Like the second I got here, I was like, audition. I auditioned for probably like six weeks and I was auditioning a ton and it was great. And I got an agent and I was like, this is awesome. And then the more I auditioned, the more I like hated the scripts I was getting. <laughs> and as someone who it's hard, because like as someone who's like an academic in many ways, I find myself like very attuned to when writing is not the way I like it or when like people are not wording emails well or I'm like you're not coming off very intellectually sound I'm like it's such a turnoff for me so like I would be like declining declining and my agent's like you can't 
decline an audition just because you don't like the way it's written. And I'm like, yeah, I can, because if I got cast from that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say yes to it. So what's the point of saying yes to the audition? Like, let someone else do it. And it's the whole, like, oh, we'll get in front of these people. And I'm like, I understand that. But at the same time, I'm like, if this is the effort they're putting into it, like, why, do, why am I expected to put in this effort? So I was having that problem. So then I wrote my own script <laughs> and I was like, I'm just going to do my own thing. <laughs> and I wrote a short and I went into pre-production for three months. I met a producing partner. We shot the whole thing. We raised money. We made money on the short, which I will say apparently is like a big deal. I didn't know that at the time, but we donated $2,500 to a finance charity that that's what the film is about. It's about the two weeks my sister and I were quarantined and she got a scholarship to help her go to USC and so I raised money and gave it to that scholarship. And then we're in post for that film right now. Well, we're, we're finished with it, but we just got into our first festival like a week ago. Yeah. So I'm like sort of becoming a filmmaker now, which has been really fun because I never expected that. But now me and my partner are like in pre-production for another project already because we had an EP like connect with us. So we're doing another thing now. So like a year ago, I never would have thought this is what I'd be doing now, but I kind of love it. So that's kind of the short of my acting career. I love your story for so many reasons. Thank you. The biggest one is probably because, and this is a little narcissistic of me to say, <laughs> I resonate so much with what you just said. And it's starting with, like the jolt of PTSD you gave me when you said the word MCAT and also as a as a fellow academic, right? That's a really interesting thing to think about with with writing, right? I agree with you. It's one of the things that I know has def definitely has frustrated me about the industry. And I don't mean it to sound like I'm holier than thou. And I know you don't mean that either, but but I agree, right? The energy that we would be putting into something is really high compared to what other people would put in. And there's no excuse for shitty writing. It drives me up the wall. Yeah. Can I ask, why did you pick neuroscience? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I actually grew up with like a really rare form of epilepsy. Uh, it's called sporadic hemiplegic migraine. And it's like a point gene mutation that's not familial. It's completely sporadic. So neither of my parents have it. And we didn't know what it was until I turned like 17. It's like pretty recent, honestly. But I got my first attack when I was 12. And I grew up in France for five years. <laughs> it's another side note. And I'm fluent in French. But um, yeah, so I got my first attack when we were in France. And we'd only been there for like a year. And I was just with my mom. And is like a huge sidebar but like my dad worked three hours away so we only saw him on the weekends and we would commute to see him so my mom was just with me and my two siblings i'm the middle of three and i got this attack and basically it's like it's more similar to a stroke where you get scotoma meaning paralysis of half the body and i would get like aphasia and i couldn't speak and i couldn't see things so this happened like really, really quickly the first time I got it. And then I got like uncontrollable vomiting and then I was super dehydrated and they had to take me to the hospital. But my mom didn't speak French, so she couldn't really communicate what was going on. So they thought I had bacterial meningitis, which obviously the symptoms are very similar because I did have swelling of the meninges, which is an inner circle part of the brain just for anyone. But um, I didn't have that. And then like the next day, like 18 hours later, I woke up and I had no recollection of what had happened. And then they were asking me questions and asking me symptoms. And so they they diagnosed me with migraine, but then I continued to get these attacks. And so we didn't really know what was going on. And then we moved back to the States when I was 14. And in the first two weeks I was in an American high school, I got like 10 of them. So it was a real like issue. So then I started to go to a neurologist and do kind of clinical trials because back in what was this like 20... 13 this was a period of time it's crazy like for anyone who's listening who doesn't know about like migraines or brain technology it it has developed so intensely in the past like 10 years even that things in 2013 were like massively different than they are now so back in 2013 when i was in clinical trials for the drug that i'm taking now which is topiramate which is an anti-epileptic drug um i like wasn't allowed to take it because i was under 16 so they like let me take it and then it started to prevent 
my seizures. So then they thought I had epilepsy, which I, it's not epilepsy because it's not necessarily strobe driven and they couldn't figure out what causes them. And then for a while it was like, don't drink black tea, don't eat chocolate, don't. And then it was like, don't get stressed. And I'm like, okay, so then kind of like my junior year of high school, I was like, this is just because I was afraid. I was constantly afraid. I had to carry. I had a preventative medication that I took three times a day and I had an abortive medication that if I started getting, I get aura that turns to like blindness, tunnel vision, and then turns to the scotoma paralysis vomiting, right? And within like, if I didn't take my medication, the abortive, and within like 30 seconds, the migraine would not stop and it could get like full force hospital. Yeah. Yeah. So I had to like carry this with me at all times, all times. In my senior year of high school, like my senior fall, when I was deciding and like doing college and whatnot, I was taking a practice AP environmental science exam. And I just remember, I like looked up. I was just like sitting at the desk. I like looked up and one of the lights like caught my eye kind of weird. And I started getting the auras and I like panicked and I went over to my teacher and I was like, I have to get my medicine. It's in the nurse because they wouldn't let me carry it on me, which for two, this is fully should be illegal. What? And so they wouldn't let me carry it. So I'm like running to the nurse's office, but it takes me like a couple minutes to get there because it's kind of far. And I get there, I take the medication and then I like wake up in the hospital. Apparently I like passed out. My mom picked me up and then like it was like six or seven hours. So then to myself, I was like, if I can't get into a school for performing arts that I want to go to, I need to understand what is going on with me and in my body because it feels so uncontrollable and it's adding to the fear and it's making it worse. Even if it's, I can't figure out why that is at the time. I was like, I know it's making it worse. So I joined a research lab my freshman year at Cal in metalingual development for children between the ages of three to five who were like in the critical period of when their bilateral hemisphere starts to join. Right. So these were kids who were bilingual in English and French and so I loved working with them. But there was like a tangent to this lab where we had children who suffered from like um, prenatal epilepsy. So children who are in embryonic epilepsy, which is like extremely rare. But most of these children don't really make it older than two or three years old. So I started like doing that research and was so interested in that. And then I was like neuroscience. And the more I studied it, the less it scared me. And then throughout all of college, I only had like four attacks. So... I think part of, I mean, we just don't know. Cause again, like this, what I have, it's like less than a thousand people in the U S have it. So it's extremely rare, but it got to a point where I like understood what I had. I understood the gene that it had, like I was tested for it. I knew what it was. I had multiple trials where we tried to find my triggers. We couldn't figure out my triggers, which I'm okay with that right now. Cause I, I know confidently that within my lifetime, like this will be something that people figure out, but I think I've figured it out for myself and that I know what kind of causes it for me, even if it's not a consistent thing. It's like it's like something that leads up to it that causes it for me. And I can sense, like I can feel it and I know when it's going to come on. So, but the biggest is just like understanding what's going on in your brain when you're having an epileptic attack and not letting it scare you and knowing that it's not going to kill me. Because when I was a younger kid, like 12, I mean, I thought these things were going to kill me always because I didn't know what they were and no one knew what they were. And the way people would look at me, they're like, oh, you're just like, (laughs) I was horrified. So now I'm like, yeah, it can be extremely painful. It can be really scary. And other people don't know what's going on, but I know what's going on and I know it's not going to kill me. So I can just like lock myself in a room and it's going to be fine. So that's why I studied neuroscience. Hi everyone, Janet McMorty here. This week's episode is sponsored by Shaw Insurance and Financial Services Incorporated. If you are looking for someone to help you with your short and long-term financial goals, retirement and estate planning, or corporate and life insurance and investing, give Mitchell Shaw at Shaw Insurance Financial Services Incorporated a call today. Everybody, this guy is the real deal. He is my financial guy. Mine. I trust him with my hard-earned money. He understands artists. He's a creative like us. He likes improv and video games. He is not your parents' finance guy. He understands you as a creative and how important your hard-earned money is. He also understands that a lot of us didn't go to finance planning school. (laughs) I went to medical school. I know how to do medical things. I don't know anything about money. A lot of you went to theater school and don't know anything about money, and that's fine. That's why he exists. 
he understands you and your creative brains. Give him a call, 705-325-2511. Together, you and Mitch will review your current financial picture and establish a plan to achieve your short and long-term goals. This is for Ontario residents only. Give him a call. Mitchell Shaw is his name. He's my finance guy. He's fantastic. Tell him I sent you 705. Yes, it's a 705 area code. He's up north here with me. 705-325-2511. Get your finances in order. Money is important for society. We don't have a barter system. You cannot barter your acting skills. I wish we could. Are you, and you kind of alluded to this, about being the type of person who wants to understand how things work Mm -hmm. and not just obviously from a personal standpoint because you have a personal, you know, reason behind it, but like, is that you just globally as well too? And not just understanding your, what's going on in your brilliant brain, but do you want that for all other aspects of your life? Like how things work? Yeah. I definitely think I do. I mean, every audition I get, I always ask for the script and I get it like most of the time because I'm like, I don't care if I have two lines. Like I need to know the entire scope. I need to know where I am in this whole entire thing. I need to pick it apart. I need to find all the themes. Like I just have to do that for myself. Otherwise, I don't feel like I can understand what they want in any situation. So I do that all the time. I mean, I was the kid who when I was like 10, 13, I would like take I still do it, but like, I'll like take a clock apart. I just want to understand how the clock works. Cause like, there's no reason to live and like wonder, like, it's not that hard. That's how it works. Or like take apart like a computer or like, I do like, I get that from my dad. I'm a big fixer. Like if something in my apartment breaks, I can fix, like I'll fix it. And if I can't figure it out, like I'll just sit with it. I'll look at it and I'll figure it out. Like I'll fix it. Cause there's no reason to be like, Oh, it's broken Buy another, like, no, fix it, figure out how it works rewire it fix it solder it do something like i have a a whole ass like toolkit yeah that's you are correct that is my personality take me back to something that you said that i find really interesting that i don't know if i've ever chatted with anyone about but again something i resonated with when you were saying you had a tough time with peers and family how to explain to them what you were doing and why. And then, of course, the parallels, kind of this hilarious, hilariously weird situation you found yourself in with your sister quarantining, kind of being like, we can hide and submit you to these programs without having to explain what we're doing and why. Yeah. But that's interesting, right? Like that, like having difficulty explaining why? And I wonder, like, was it because everyone was an academic and not really understanding the creative side of you that was wanting to come forward? Or tell me more about that. I think it's it's a big question. And it's a question I like struggle with on a lot of levels. I think sometimes, and this is like totally narcissistic, but I'm sure you probably might resonate with this. Sometimes, and this this has happened my whole life. This is not just like acting. And it's like neuroscience too. Sometimes I'm like, it's going to take so long to explain this to someone to where they might understand it the way that I do, that it's just pointless. I'm just not even going to explain it or tell them. And then I'm like resentful that they don't understand it. I'm like, okay, this makes literally no sense. Like if I want my parents to understand a project that I'm working on, there's like a huge umbrella of backstory that is relevant and like very necessary to understanding what's going on that like would you'd only understand how heightened something I'm experiencing is if you understood the backstory. But therefore, I'm mad at my parents because I haven't explained it nor taken the time or tried. But then I'm like, it's a huge deal that I got this audition. Or like, it's a huge deal. And they're like, okay. And I'm like, you just don't, you're not even trying to understand. They're like, you don't, you don't try to help us understand. It's a, it's a real catch 22. And I don't know exactly what it is. But for when I was transitioning, I think I really struggle with the fact that I had taken a long time creating this like, mold of myself that people saw me as that was very infallible like I had really good grades I was this person who was like could do everything but I had chosen to do this thing that is like you know a very respectable like she's really young she's gonna be a neuro I I wanted to be a pd neurosurgeon that was what I wanted to do so it's like 
the longest residency. And I was like, I don't care. I'll live in the hospital. And my parents were like, okay. Like, whatever. Like, you have to do. But to me, to myself, I think I'm the person who was always like, you have to do. So then when I, I felt innately, I'm like, uh, no, like you can't do that. You'll go insane. You actually are very creative and you've always been creative and I don't know why you're pushing it away. I'm like, uh, no, that doesn't fit into the mold I've created. So how are we gonna? So I didn't know how to explain it to people. And then I would get mad if they like asked me questions about it. So I have that problem and I don't know exactly what it is or how to fix it. But yeah. I don't think it's a problem, right? Like, and I, oh man, everything you're saying is just, I feel ya, right? And I, I, yeah, it's, it's hard because I get, I get to ask this question a lot. Like, where did, like, why did you want to be a doctor? I don't know. Like, I honestly, I, some days, I, like, I don't know, right? No, there was no pressure from uh, from people growing up. My parents, similar to yours, I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go to medical school. I'm going to be a, in orthopedics. And they were like, oh, okay. Like, just kind of that just bit confused. And then I totally agree with you. I would get mad that they were confused. But again, the the mad, the being angry was nothing to do with them, my poor parents. It was more because I think I was confused at what I wanted. But I was like projecting confidence, being like, I'm doing this. And I've told people I'm doing this. So I can't back out now because that's weakness. Right, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it's I, I, I hear you. And then I know now that I'm doing more acting, my poor dad is kind of like, that confused again you went on this path that you said you were going to do and you did it and now you don't want to do it anymore now okay okay all right janet i'm just confused and i'm like why are you confused but again it's just it's i think i'm mad at my i know i'm mad at myself because i probably don't understand why i'm doing what i'm doing and my parents my mom said something really poignant to me the other day she's like it's like you have to do something until you understand it and can do it better than anyone you know and then you're so done with it and you just have to move on she's like and then if you like go back to that you feel like you've somehow lost like you can't continue doing something that you're good at you have to move on and i'm like no and she's like yeah yeah <laughs> she's like you made this film it was great now you're like okay we're done with that i'm in a show right now i'm performing in like an immersive theater show as a jazz pianist and singer and it's apparently very successful but because we just got extended like another month and I was calling to complain to my parents the other day and they're like, isn't this what you want to do? Like, are you, this is great, right? This is great. And I'm like, I'm tired of it already. Like, I'm so done with it. And they're like, I don't understand. And I'm like, I don't understand. <laughs> I'm like, it's great. It's walkable from my apartment. It pays well. I love my cast. I love my, I love what I'm doing. I love the work. Like, why am I complaining? I'm like, I feel like I've already, like, I know it. I've done it. So I'm like, okay, I have to move on now. We're finished. I wonder if it's, I've always had a really tough time, and this is going to sound woo-woo. I've had a tough time being present in the present moment. I've always been very future-focused. And it probably comes down to, like, FOMO, like, fear that I'm going to be missing something in the future. But I've always been that type of person who said, what is next? And what is better? Because what I'm doing right now is not good enough, which is a sick, sick kind of mind game that I think my perfectionistic brain plays on me. Because I know when I can ground and be so happy in my present moment and what I'm doing, that's what I'm so just thrilled with life and the world. But so much of what I've always done leading up to now has been like, what's next? Because there's been a very defined next that I'm looking forward to, right? I went to university. Okay, next is grad school. Duh. Then next is medical school. Duh. That's the next logical step. Next is residency. Uh, duh. Right? That's a duh. So there's these steps that have always been there. And then when they run out of steps, you get to the top, you're like, okay, I'm going to find a new set of stairs to climb. They're so right. Yeah, I know I have a really hard time with being in the present moment, too. I mean, like, I make, I'm, I have calendars planned out for, like, years. When I moved to L.A., I made a five-year plan. In the first year, I literally stuck to it. I was like, I'm going to make a film. 
and I'm going to be taken seriously as a producer. Done. And I was like, I, I was like, I want to get all these agents, blah, 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 these people. I was like, I want to have relationships with these people. Finished. Done. And I'm like, okay, first year finished. Now I'm like, okay, second year. My mom's like, hey, what, like, you should think about the things that you've done and how that is so different from where you were last year and not think about everything you're trying to do in the future all the time. And I wish that that was so easy, but I just don't know how to. And I, I think it's hard because there's a bl- there's a blend, right? There has to be a blend. You can't just be this present, grounded, focused person all the time. Like, sure, I'm sure there are people out there who are highly successful and are able to do that. But that's just not who you are. And that's not who I am. And that'll never be the case. And that's OK. I like planning. I like goal setting. I like knowing I like checking check boxes. That's how I progress. That's how I stay consistent and progress. And there's no way in hell I would have been able to be as successful as I am with all the things that I have juggling around if I wasn't like that. But I think there does need to be that ability to realize when such future focused thinking is starting to be a bit detrimental because like what's going on in the present is so great. But I kind of wonder, like, especially with what with what you dealt with growing up, like, especially even something as simple as, well, not simple, but, you know, being like sometimes the present moment, especially with like the medical condition you're dealing with, like that's a terrifying place to be. You have to think that there's going to be a positivity in the future. Otherwise, like it's terrifying to think that you're going to die in the present moment. Like that's an awful thing to be to have grown up with that. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Of course you're going to think about the future. Like, your brain's going to be like, please, future. You know, it's really interesting because not until pretty recently, like in the past year, had I ever even really thought about what it was like to have that and still have it because it was so normal to me. And I'm also so private about it. Like, I've never really talked about it until like literally in the past couple months with people who I just like, who aren't in my family. And I'm like, oh, this is a problem that people just don't have like a lot of people didn't have something like this and I think you're totally right that that might be part of the reason that I'm not like that I struggle in the present because for a really long time I was like afraid of the present because at any moment I could start seeing something and then I knew that the next like two days of my life were completely gone and no matter who I talked to or did any like any plans I had made it just didn't matter and it was like no matter what I did my body had control and I didn't have control So no matter where I was, I was like living in fear of myself and like the present moment, like you're saying, well, and sometimes I would get like auras and then they would disappear. So like it didn't turn to a migraine. So I would have to like completely check out. And especially if I was around people who like didn't really know me and they didn't know that I had this thing going on because my mom always tried to get me to wear like a medical bracelet or like a necklace or something, which no, because I never wanted to be like considered different. But around like people I didn't know, I mean, one time I was like doing a modeling job and I started getting them because like the, I guess the flash of the camera was like really bothering me. And so I told them like I needed to take a break and they're like, okay, well, we don't have time for a break. And I was like, well, it's like a very immediate, like it's really a problem. And it didn't turn to a migraine, thankfully, but I'm like, if it had, like, I really have to tell people about it. Like it can't just be some sort of surprise. By the way, I might start seizing on your set. It was so much about acting is being in the present moment how do you do that with also a very future thinking planning brain as well too it's a really good question i love acting because i feel like it's it's like an escape and when i'm acting I feel like I'm in a world where like nothing can necessarily go wrong. So when I'm in that domain, I'm just there. And it's like I enter it and then I leave. So I think something that I'm really lucky that I'm able to do, and it doesn't always work. It's not always happening, but it's also like a practice that I'm training and constantly working on. But the ability to like enter and just be in that space as whoever you are and then return 
and thinking about all the worries and whatever what I'm always thinking about, but not having that infect the brain of whoever I'm portraying. I think that's part of the allure for acting for me, for sure. Because like my character, Annie, that I'm playing, she doesn't have epilepsy or whoever. She doesn't have all these problems. So I don't have to worry about that because it's not going to happen to her. So I don't have to think about it. It's like a really weird brain body separation that definitely doesn't exist. But I've never had a migraine on stage or like, no. So interesting. That's so powerful, right? And that I think that just shows how bad, excuse my friend, bad shit crazy the brain and body can be, crazy. right? Like, it's almost like you're tricking it. Yeah. But like, how tricking it into safety in the present moment, right? Yeah. Well, and then that's like when neurologists tell me that it's a stress-induced thing. And you're like, oh, is this stress? But it is because, I mean, they're right. Like, so many things physically are induced when you're stressed and then if you think it's a stress-induced thing then you're stressed and then you're gonna it's a whole thing but i think the idea of like tricking your body into thinking that there is no world in which it could occur and fully believing that is one way to deal with it and i think that's acting so well it, it comes right back to like the very first thing we were talking about right you are be- you have lost your keys right right you are fully believing that you have lost your keys. You are fully believing. And I don't think your brain knows the difference, right? Like, if you fully believe, like, because you're now this character of Annie without epilepsy, like, that's that's not fake. Like, that's right. full belief from a biochemistry standpoint. And that's where I think that real acting comes forward that is just so obvious compared to someone who's just mimicking it who's walking like elizabeth warren when that action happens right who's mimicking eating the food right oh that's so that's so powerful hey holy crow Hmm. wow oh wow has there been anything that has surprised you about the entertainment industry honestly yeah like especially living in la i think there's a couple things that really surprise me the first is that Even people who are like wildly successful, who I've had the chance to work with, don't necessarily know what they're doing. They have more experience. They have more experience. So they like know where to walk and how to get there faster and like how to stand there and look really professional, which is great. But when like push comes to shove, nobody I think really knows what they're doing. So to be afraid to do something because you don't know how to do it is like not the real problem. So if you think you're afraid to do something because you're you don't you've never done it before, think about what's actually the problem. Because I think that's everyone's problem in LA. It's like we all want to do the same thing, but we can't work together because we don't want to be taken as like someone who's networking, but we all want to work together and like but we don't. It's really strange and like people want we all want the same things in our career. But we don't do them because we feel like they're intangible. It's like, oh, first I need to get a guest star. And then I need to get a co-star. And then I need to get a lead. Like, not necessarily. No. You can do it. You can do anything you want. Like, is that what you want to do? Like, make your own film and then, like, tour it on the festival circuit. Meet casting directors at workshops. Or I, I don't know. Like, you don't you don't have to make it a stepladder. I think it's really alluring to make things a stepladder, like we were talking about. But especially in the entertainment industry, I've realized... There is no stepladder. So there's no reason to try to make it into one. You're like, oh, yes, well, I've only been here for this amount of time. So like, I can't be ready for that yet. Like, yeah, you are. You are. It doesn't matter. So I think the thing that is the weirdest to me out here is that there's a real sense of drive. Like people really want to do things. There's dreams and everyone, like, I really believe them. But then when push comes to shove, I'm like, what are you, what are you doing to make that happen? It's like there's a limiting belief that everyone believes in that is stopping everyone from doing what they want to do. And I think approaching it from a non-actor standpoint for the past like four years has really helped me because I know how to study. I know how to like sit in a chair and come out eight like out eight hours later and like have actually done eight hours worth of work and like haven't looked at my phone, haven't done anything, like haven't gotten up because I have to. So I'm like, I love it. Like I love working, but of my own volition 
and nothing really seems hard. Because I'm like, you know, I took like three years of multivariable calculus. Like, I, like, you know, I'm like, oh, I have to like memorize three pages of lines. Oh, like, <laughs> like, of course, there's a, it's a different difficulty, but the actual just like physical difficulty, I'm like, you know what, if I don't have to do like four pages of proofs or like eigenvectors, I'm like, it's not that hard. Like, it's just not like y'all need to get a reality check. I don't know. That's that's a sidebar. I had this. I was in acting class last night and my instructor was like, OK, Janet, I'm going to give you constructive criticism and I don't want you to take this. Negative. And I was like, dude, I went through residencies, loud old men screaming at me that I'm useless pieces of whatever. I was like, yeah. I can handle an acting teacher saying I didn't do a good job on this part in this scene. Come on. Give me the criticism. Please. I always ask for the feedback. I'm like, there's nothing you could say that would shake me. Like, to, there really isn't. Like, there really isn't. Like, unless you're going to tell me, like, ah, oh, yes, you're terminally ill, you're going to die. I'd be like, oh, this is bad. But if you're like, that was terrible, you sucked. I'd be like, that's a valid opinion. Valid. Great. Maybe I did. <laughs> Fine fine let's move on like what i don't know it's so true i worked as a medical assistant for this woman who was an (laughs) oculoplastic surgeon for eyes and this woman was she was insane i mean she was great but she runs like one of the most lucrative private practices in san francisco and she started her clinic at 5 45 in the morning which is when i had to be there okay and I like, yeah. And so that's when I had to be there. And she finished her clinic at 1045. And then she went to the hospital and did surgeries from 1145 because she took one hour to it took 40 minutes to get there. She took 15 minutes to eat a protein bar. Then she went in there. She did surgeries for six hours and then came back to clinic and took patients again from six to 9 p.m. How was she alive, first of all? But my point in this whole thing, she was insane. She would see patients double booked every five minutes. Every five minutes. Two and a half minutes. So every room had to be prepped and ready. And it's just me running around being like, and her just screaming at me. Telling me how like unkempt I am, how ridiculous I am, how immature. I was 19. How immature I am. And she had me lie to patients saying I was like 26. Because I would give them IVs. Like I prepped them for surgery. And they're like, just if they ask, just tell them that you're married and tell them that you're 26. I was like, I don't look 26. I'm not 26 now. I'm like, there's no way. But yeah, that uh, like if if that scenario could occur and I could like withstand that. And then it, like it, at 9 p.m. things would end and she'd be like, you did a great job today. I'm like, then what? <laughs> I have to apply. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Like you scare everyone. Do you have any any advice for anyone who's interested in changing careers or getting back into acting? I think my number one is just like do. Also, don't think that once you start doing and by do, I mean, like when I first started getting back into acting, the very first thing I did was read plays. I read like a 100 plays like I had someone who was at NYU Tisch, like in acting. I was like, what plays did you read while you were at school there? And they're like, oh, this was the list of all the plays we were supposed to read. And I read every single one because I was like, when I graduate from Berkeley, it's like I want to enter the industry with a similar background of knowledge as all these other art school children who are going to emerge. So I was like, I'm going to read all of these plays and I'm going to do I did character work on all of them. And I memorized monologues from half of them. So I like worked on and did monologues and because like there's again, there's no excuse. It's all you like you don't need anything. You can look these plays up online. You can. Like, even now, I print my size at the library. I walk across the street and I print my size at the library. It's free. I still get my place at the library. So, like, there is access. So, number one, just do. And if you don't know where to start, plays are a great place to start. And just working on material for plays. And then I got into an acting class. And I think get into an acting class. Even if you have no idea what you're doing or where to start, like, audit classes and then find one that works for you. Because you need to be consistently practicing the craft to make it better. You just need to find it for yourself, the rhythm of it. And then, yeah, just don't get discouraged because you don't know how it's going to go. And it's very easy to say, like, don't get, I get discouraged like every day. Like, I'm not, but you, you're not going to know. But 
if you love it and you love just doing it, then you should love auditioning. You should love getting rejected. You should love the callbacks. Like the whole process is the thing that you love. So there's no part of it that is that upsetting. And at the end of the day, like nothing, nothing matters. Like go into the audition and do whatever. Like it doesn't matter. Do whatever. Be crazy. There's always like, the, oh, this is how it's supposed to go. Like you need to have this color background. Like you need to read it like this. You need to hold your, like, no, nothing matters. If you read a scene and you're like, this is how it goes, or you have an instinct that this is how it goes, then that's how it goes. And just do it. Don't let anyone tell you that that's not, no. The whole point, like if I'm, when I watched tapes and cast my short film, I, the girl that we cast did not do it the way that I wrote it. But the second she started, I was like, this is very interesting. I'm like, this is not. And then I saw things in the work that I hadn't necessarily put there, but it's, it's collaborative. And I think the thing about films specifically is that I think half the film is made after it's finished and the audience is like ingesting it and watching it. And as they interpret it, it becomes something else. So like when you write something and you watch someone read it, you an actor, you're creating a narrative that the writer might not necessarily have seen because you're putting your own perspective on it. So if you're trying to mold yourself into a perspective that you think is theirs, it's by nature artificial. So don't do that because you're just taking away a possible new perspective that the writer is yet to find. Like bring yourself that's what we want. That's what I want. That's what that's what it is. That's very freeing and very exciting because that's and terrifying to because that that changes it from I am doing the checkboxes and I can academically make my way make what they want um to something of now oh there is no boxes to check. But I love what you said about instinct and really like that's that's the key, right? What your instinct is for this character, just do it. Oh, that's really exciting. That's a really cool way to think about things. Thank you. Do you have a favorite on-set story or on-stage story? Okay, when I was 11, I was Wendy and Peter Pan. And this was at my school in France. <laughs> and all growing up before, well, let's see, I, when I, before I was 13, I wear glasses. I wear contacts now. And for a long time, they're like, oh, your epilepsy is caused by your contact. No. It's like, it's whatever. Sidebar. And then for this show, I was too young to get contacts yet, but my character didn't wear glasses. And I have very bad vision. For anyone who like wears or has prescriptions, I have like a negative six, negative 6.75. And I have a um, stigmatism. So it's just very bad vision. Always have. So without glasses, I can see about this far away until it becomes blurry. And like at 10 feet, I could not recognize you. Like even if I, you were my mom, like I would not know who you are. It's so bad. <laughs> but um, for this show, my directors were like, you can't wear your glasses. And I was like, well, I'm not going to be able to see. And they're like, well, you've done the show enough. Like this is opening night. They're like, you've done the show enough. You, you don't need them. And I was like, okay. I was 11. So I was like, okay. So I just didn't wear my glasses. And so the second I walked on stage, I was like, oh, this is going to be a problem because the, we've got the stage lights going and I can't see. And so for me, I'm literally, it's just, I just see a pool of light. That's all. I see nothing else. I can't see any of the actors. I can't see anything. So the show's going on and I'm like doing my thing. I'm singing one of my songs. And then there's, it gets to a scene where I'm supposed to walk the plank and jump off. Because again, Wendy, Peter Pan. And I like get up on the thing. My mom said it was like the funniest thing because I was just like staring blankly. Like I, she's like, you look so wistful. I was like, I could not see anything. So I'm like walking up on this thing and apparently I'm like in the wrong spot, but I had no idea. And so I'm walking and apparently I go early because I'm supposed to like see him and like can't see anything. So I'm like in my head, I'm like, you know what? It's just going to work out. Things are going to happen the way they're supposed to happen. So I jump off. He's not there yet. Of course. So I <laughs> hit the ground and my skirt gets like caught up on <laughs> and I'm like flashing everybody and everyone starts laughing and I had no idea. And also like I kind of got hurt. Like I'm like sort of bleeding. Like, And I'm just continuing to go. I'm continuing to go on with the scene. I'm just like, <laughs> but he's not even on stage yet. So people are like, they think it's like some sort of comical farce. Like I'm like, oh, Peter. And they're like, He's not there. It's so oh my God. So then I just like get up and then I just like 
climb back on this. I had no idea. Like, I probably looked drunk. I don't know. I just, like, climb back on the stage. And then he comes over and he's, like, grabbing my arm. And now he's close enough for me to see him. And I'm, like, and he's, like, staring at me, like, and I'm, like, what? And then he's, like, and my dress is, like, caught up. Like, literally. <laughs> and I'm, like, flashing. Yeah. And so then I got walked off of the stage and my directors were, like, you can wear your glasses. It was so bad. The worst part about it was that, like, all that was the performance for, like, my peers, like, all my friends saw it. And we were in, like, the seventh grade. And the guy who played Peter was, like, way older than me. He was, like, 16. And so, oh, my God. It was so embarrassing. But it, you know what? It was less embarrassing for me because I couldn't see what happened. So, in my mind, I was like, this is how it went. And no one can convince me otherwise. Because if I didn't see it, it didn't happen. <laughs> Holy crow. It was really... And then I got contacts. So, we're good. We're good. That's all we're good. We're good enough. Is there is there anything that you are looking forward to coming up? Mm. Well, like I said, my show just got extended. So we're going to be performing till mid-November. So it's a fun thing because it's an immersive overnight experience. So the guests like stay the night in the hotel and they think that we stay there too. But like, we don't. And so then it, it's like a murder mystery whodunit. Like one of the actors dies during the performance and then they have to try to figure out who did it. And it's like this whole like, it's very fun. And it's set in the 20s. So I love my show. It's very fun. Uh, what am I looking forward to? I am in pre-production for a psychological thriller that I co-wrote with someone. And we're shooting a proof of concept in January at a cabin in Tahoe. So I'm looking forward to that because that's really fun. Also, I love Tahoe. Also, I love psychological thrillers. So it's all just great. And then my acting studio is going to Greece in April. So I'm going to Greece for like an actor's retreat with some of my closest friends and it's like it's like eight days of scene work and like breath work and yoga and bonding and like there's another european group that's coming with us so i'm excited for that like next year yeah that sounds incredible yeah and i haven't been to greece since i was a kid so i'm excited to experience it as like a person and with like the like cool idea of like an acting intensive like that's gonna be so interesting do you have any final words of wisdom i think the biggest thing kind of like what i've already said is that just do like just do and don't like do free of judgment if you wake up and you want to write something don't think about what it is you're going to write or how it's going to be or what you're going to do with it or what it's going to be about just write it and then think about that stuff later. Same thing with an audition. Like if you get an audition, don't think about like, oh my gosh, it would be so great if I booked this. No, it doesn't matter. None of it matters. Just look at the material. Think, oh, wow, I love this. I wonder if this character, yeah, they do. Because that's what you think they do. So just do it. Then forget about it. Don't question it. Don't think about it. Don't ask anyone. It doesn't, no one's opinion matters but yours. So don't be like asking someone for your their help or their opinion or, yeah. So I think ultimately just do and then just see what comes of it. Just but don't have expectations on it. Because art can't you can't have expectations on art because then you're by nature limiting it. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And thank you, Abby, for being my guest this week. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Oh, I relate to so much of what you said. It just hit me right in the gut. Scientists can be creatives too, and creatives can also be scientists. We can use both sides of our brain. Science is awesome. I hope you will all tune in next week for another episode of Second Act Actors. Bye. Second Act Actors is produced and edited by me, Janet McMorty. Theme music by Guillaume. Additional sound editing by David Studio. Additional video editing by Jackie Wadewer. Show notes written by Sarah Hopkinson. I record using Riverside FM. If you're interested in developing an interview-based webcast like mine, I highly recommend this platform. Shoot me an email and I'll direct you to the wonderful folks there. If you or someone you know is interested in being a guest, email me at secondactactors at gmail.com. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share with your friends. My love language is words of affirmation, so compliments, constructive criticism, and feedback are always welcome and encouraged. Negative Nancys, Judgy McJudgersons, or Debbie Downers, unless you're Rachel Dratch, regarding me or my guests are not welcome. It takes serious courage to share your story with the world, 
So if you're tempted to negatively comment about someone else's story, please ask your therapist why you're such a garbage person. Save the drama for the stage. On that happy note, I hope you'll tune in next week for another episode of Second Act Actors. Bye! Bye!